On this episode of SSI Executive Conversations, Darwin meets with friend and mentor Joe Mullings, CEO and chairman of Mullings Group, to discuss the hiring processes, what the market for available talent looks like, particularly in the life sciences space, and how the importance of media and analytics are to the industry. I couldn't be more excited today to welcome Joe Mullings onto the SSI Executive Conversations podcast. Uh, Joe, if, Joe really doesn't need an introduction unless you've been kind of hiding in a cave in terms of what he's done in the world of med tech, the value that he's brought. He's the chairman and the CEO of the Mullings Group companies um, because he owns multiple companies and that includes TMG Search and Dragonfly Stories. The search firm has over three decades in the industry, is responsible for more than 8,000 successful searches in med tech, health tech, life sciences, Clients ranging from multi-billion dollar companies to emerging high-tech organizations literally worldwide. TMG's international presence and work with over 800 companies allow them to provide solutions with the clients they partner with across the entire globe. And as the first search firm to integrate media and talent access, Dragonfly Stories was launched as a media production company complete with a state-of-the-art studio for use by clients and partners for attention and awareness. Uh, Dragonfly, phenomenal team. Uh, it's a media machine behind the seven-time Telly award-winning video docuseries, True Future, of which Joe is the host. Uh, I'm grateful to, to call him a friend and a mentor, and he's on the SSI advisory panel. So welcome, Joe. Thank you for coming on to share your uh, experience and insight with our following. Darwin, thanks for the uh, outstanding intro. Man, I think that was the best one I ever got. So thank you for that, <laughs> my friend. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, so so glad to be part of your journey as well. I think you're one of the few search firms in MedTech especially that is doing it right. Um, so congratulations to you and your team there. Uh, well, thank you. I, that's humbling and I greatly appreciate it. I'm really excited about this conversation and I, I think you're somebody that, um, you know, always focused on bringing value to those in, in the industry. Um, and in terms of what you've done with media and the studio, you just keep upping the ante in, in a positive fashion, I think. But as we think about what we want to talk about today, what I was hopeful is we could give some insight into companies um, as well as the talent out there that might watch this that brings value to the marketplace in defining improved processes in terms of where people are at in their career and their search for that next step. And maybe we start by really defining, I think we both uh, agree that companies should really have two processes for, for hiring and identifying talent relevant to the active market versus the passive, and maybe even how we define um, what that means. So maybe you could start us off in this conversation with your thoughts there. Sure. <clears throat> so ideally, Darwin, there'd be one process, but that's too big of a lift. And you and I have had this conversation before. At this point in time, sometimes baby steps are better than no steps. Historically, the hiring process has not changed much in a lot of organizations while the world has changed dramatically on delivery mechanisms. So we've gone from putting want ads on the back of newspapers to now online in the monster days, and now we're at the LinkedIn um, 
moment in time. Uh, we now have more outbound, aggressive, invasive recruiting going on, whether it's a headhunting firm or even corporations themselves have brought talent access in-house. <clears throat> yeah. um, but they've mixed that up. They've made the mistake of mixing that up with HR. There's still the mistake of thinking that HR should own talent access um, when they're two entirely different functions in an organization. Yeah. HR should be taking care of the people inside the family. Talent access should be part of the uh, hiring brand development, the media, the marketing, the attention awareness, a term that Nicole Ager and myself had uh, sort of put together um, a couple of years ago. And then mm -hmm. how do you go after the people who are not looking? Uh, and that right. function should yeah. report up into the C-suite as well. So bifurcating those two, um, but again, the start should be how you manage the process of the people who are not looking and how you manage the process of the people who have applied is a good start. I think that is spot on. And there's so many different things that you said there, but in terms of, you know, you think about from good to great and having the right people, I, I think that talent and your people are your number one asset, but that's only if you have the right people and then they're in the right seats. And you just pointed out to that because I, my perception of my time in the industry is that people in the corporate world in that area either don't have the right skill sets or they don't have the bandwidth or both. So by combining those two, you, you decrease your ability to be efficient and have true best practices. Um, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Let's, let's, let's just, touch on that for a moment. <clears throat> when, when you look at the skills required, the white glove service required, and the ability to, let, let's say we're an organization of 150 people, or even 10,000 people for that matter. Um, there's that, there's that uh, sort of law, prices law that I talk about quite often, where the square root of the number of employees you have in your organization do 50% of the work. And so ideally, all you want to do is hire prices law people, but that's not really attainable as your organization starts to get bigger and bigger. It's possible with 10, 15, 20 people, where maybe 20 out of your 20 people are prices law people. But as you get larger and larger, just the economies of scale make it very difficult to deal with. How you get those people is an entirely different process because it's rare that a prices law person applies for a job. Um, right. But you can be sure that you go after a prices law person with an invasive outbound recruiting strategy. And if your organization is not structured, nor have you hired the right person, the right teammate to come on board to do that, that's where you need to partner with firms like yourself and my firm uh, at TMG. And you're right, Darwin, they're two entirely different skill sets, mindsets, and the ability to sell who you become if you come to work here certainly does sort of converge on those who apply. That part of the hiring process can be the same, but how you manage the two of them are entirely different. And the, the Pareto principle, I think, applies in, an, in a different sense to this, but if you're posting and praying, and you, on top of that, have the wrong people in the seat that manages that process, 
you're only going to get 20% of the actual marketplace. And the top talent is not, they're, they're successful, they're busy, and they're not actively looking at jobs or job boards. So they're never going to see that post. And even if a company has potentially uh, a process to actively go after that talent, how are they reaching out? Because the reach out is critical. And then how you have that conversation and understand uh, the mission of the company and what's exciting about it to attract them to the opportunity. Forget about uh, the efficiency of the process. That can, that can be a real challenge, as you know. Um, <clears throat> yeah. The, the, the key here is the classic hiring process of only hiring people who are applying is not necessarily going to net you those prices law people all the time. So that's number one. Um, the second part of that is that the best people are rarely comfortable sending an unsolicited resume out of their current role, even if yes. they're mildly exploring. So let's take a scenario. Let's say Susie is a prices law player and Susie has sees an ad in the paper or an ad online. Um, the odds that Susie's going to send her CV in unsolicited is near zero, and I and and I take this, I take this sort of this um, uh, question whenever I present, and I do quite a bit of public speaking. I always want to ask, how many of you? And I was just I just did the keynote, wrapped up the Avamed um, CEO conference down in Florida here, and we went through the hiring process of all these top t top tier med tech companies, and I said. Put your hand up if you've ever sent in, and these are all C CEOs now, if you've ever right. sent in your resume unsolicited to a job posting. And there were, you know how many people out of the 300 in the audience, 400 in the audience? Zero. I was going to say right. one or zero. 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 So, so why would you make that your primary process in your organization, as you pointed out, Darwin, that if people truly are your number one asset? So faulty out of the gate. And the other thing I want to do, because I want to pay a massive amount of respect to HR, Mm -hmm. HR isn't the wrong person for the role. It's just that they're overworked, under-resourced, yes. have not been trained properly, and for the most part, don't have the right tools in their hand. So even if there's an HR individual or individuals who can do this um, or manage this talent access mindset, they oftentimes don't have the time or the gap or the skills or the tools to do it properly. Oh, I think that's spot on. And I think if you and I just sat here and had a conversation of, let's look at the, just the last 60 days alone of the companies that we've partnered with, with really unique, proficient HR or TA people that are part of the triangulation process that have a hard time getting everything done that they need to do because they're so overwhelmed, um, it would be significant just in the last two to three months. Darwin, look, you and I, we own talent access firms and good ones. We, who are experts in that, still have hiring challenges. Oh, absolutely. Why? Because we are, we don't have enough time. Right. But when we do put our mind down to it, we oftentimes do get to add a prices law person. And it's a priority for us, and we're smaller organizations, generally speaking, than some of our clients for the most part. 
And we're experts at that. So please explain to me how somebody who's not an expert at that, who is already overworked, where hiring is their most important thing until it's not, which is everything else that takes place. Right. How are they expecting to get it right? And then once you get the person on board, assuming they're even close to being best in class, not just the person you knew, then you've got to worry about if it's the right person, what kind of distraction, what's the retention issues with that? And then what is the cost of the incorrect addition of a teammate to the organization? Um, and if you're not an expert on that TA side of things, talent access side of things, the odds of you getting it right are probably lower. And I don't want this to be a commercial for using a search firm. What I want it to be right. is insight as to evaluating your hiring process as if you had the chance to start from scratch. Yeah, That's what yes. our organizations that we partner with need to do. Well, I, first of all, I, I, I mirror that. I don't want anybody, this isn't an infomercial for no. external firms or Joe Mullings or Darwin Schurig. And when I presented it at, at LSI on talent management strategies and attraction efficiency and retention, the, the key aspect of that, and I think mirrors what we're talking about here, is that from a process standpoint, it doesn't matter whether you do it internally or you do it externally. And there should be a certain amount of roles that any company, if they create efficient processes, and they tie in their mission, their why, and their attraction while having interview processes that identify the traits and the characteristics they want at the company versus eliminating those they don't. And I think that's a, that's a huge opportunity to improve uh, for, for organizations because even taking and differentiating between cultural fit and technical aptitude, there's a there's a process to that, and they should be they should be segregated in a sense. Um, and so, I, I think that's so important. It doesn't matter whether it's you, you partner with an outside firm to create efficiency and attract, or you do it yourself. It, it is to your point about processes and areas where you can you can get better. Um, let, talk talk a little bit about uh, the difference. Thinking about the difference between the you know the active and, and the passive candidate or talent and really how we define those 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 people where they're at in their careers and and maybe tie that into how companies should consider their their processes mm -hmm. <clears throat> so if 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 we're going to look at the two let's 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 make sure we put the characteristics of the processes and the characteristics of the individuals that we're trying to go after the goal, ideal goal, is to always go after a prices law player. Um, having said that, though, it requires an enormous amount of resources. And right. while a prices law person contextually can be a prices law person within a certain job category, either skill sets, number of years, experience, etc. <clears throat> uh, and there are those who apply who are the ones asking to come to work at your company. So that dynamic changes dramatically right there versus yes. an organization, I believe, no matter how big it is, should have a target list of every function in their organization. And the CEO-like person should sit down, and HR shouldn't do this, and say, if you could look at the 12 functions in organization, design, development, clean, reg, qual, field service, mm -hmm. install, whatever it is, it's, and you said to a, 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 a C-suite and said, listen, 
I want you to identify the top 30 people in each of those functions for us in the next few months and give me a list. So that's 360 people mm-hmm. that if I, in a perfect world, could land them, they could make a dramatic difference in the organization. And out of those 360 people, you should be marketing to those people every week, telling the story about your organization and getting them to lean in and getting them to at least say, when you do reach out, an individual from your organization reaches out to them in a way that says, here's what we're doing. Here's why it might be valuable in your career. Here's the people you're going to work with, which informs your network and also who you could become. And then finally, here's what we have in plan over the next 6, 12, 18 months. Let us know if there's any interest. Well, now certainly you've got somebody's attention. And now they'll start watching you. And then now you start to sort of um, think of it like somebody you really want to date, somebody you really want to get in a relationship with. And you may be able to execute in that relationship 3, 6, 12, 18, 24 months from now. But if they're a top-tier prices law person, that needs to be something that you managed, you have sort of coveted, you have informed them, you've let them know when you're ready, let us know, even if we do an exploratory. That's a different process than the post and pray process, which certainly you can fill some of your roles in your organization like that. Yes. But you won't get force multipliers at scale that way where with the, let's call it the, he, the, the current 2023 and beyond progressive headhunting model, where you are, that's what we do. We identify right. the top 4,000 people in a market, and we stay in contact with them all the time, and we create a relationship. So when our client does call us, we are able to tap into that existing relationship already and bring that person in an exploratory fashion to the marketplace and then manage the process from there. That's, I think that's, that's right. That's spot on. And in terms of how you bring value, because you can bring value to them in terms of insight, compensation, emerging technology, where the, the, the money is, is going in terms of where companies, cause nobody wants to join a company that's stagnant or is headed in the wrong direction. Or perceive this stagnant, Darwin, right? So that's where a lot of organizations get it incorrect. Is okay. <clears throat> let's use an let's let's take headlines right now. You could look at a company like Medtronic and say they're in big trouble. I wouldn't go there for my career. And if the organization doesn't get a talk track out ahead of the market right now as to here are the four shining lights that are going on right now, right? This is damage control going on in the market, right? right? For the next 36 months, Medtronic's going to have an issue, if they don't stay out ahead of it, of finding best-in-class or the force multipliers that after they settle in and they get through whatever cycle they have to manage right now, they've got to stay out ahead and have parallel paths of instead of just damage control of headlines. And I'm not saying what they're doing with their business is incorrect. What I'm saying is they're leaving an enormous vacuum as to what to look forward to other than cutting back to profitability. So they need to start laying that out right now. And that's what organizations need to do is not worry about who they're going to hire in the next 60-day window, 
but what is the hiring brand they're developing for 6, 12, 18 months from now based upon just what the basic picture is in the current market based upon what you read in the paper, see on LinkedIn, or in the news. And that's where I think companies like Medtronic right now should be having a very strong hiring brand going on to at least modulate the imbalance on what the perception is in the field right now. And you do a, you have a, a educational training that you do relevant to how you nurture your message and make people aware of who you are in the marketplace, hum, sing, shout. Yeah. And I think in a sense, what you just described is how Medtronic should be putting that message out in the, in, in the idea of hum, sing, shout over the next, over those next period of months to do damage control and to make sure that those, because the market is always evolving and no company's staying the same and you have to make adjustments. And obviously there's been a lot of different challenge post pandemic, but how you share that with the marketplace so that, and before that you talk about a proactive approach for going after top talent and people that are significant differentiators, which is not easy to do. But then on top of that, how you layer in the direction of the company. And I think it's so important that through the interview process, that the mission of the company, and you spoke to this earlier too, which I, I think is so vital. Who are they going to become by coming there? You can't just interview people. You have to attract them. And so I, I, I really appreciate what you just kind of talked about in terms of how companies present that in the marketplace. Yeah. <clears throat> so you, you, you added on a critical component at the end of that statement there, Darwin, is if you're waiting for the interview process to explain to people who they become, you're only talking to the people who are already in the process. What you need to be doing as an organization is talking at scale to the entire market of who will you become when you come to work at our organization, even if you're not looking right now. So people can start tracking and following, quote unquote, your story, which could be their professional pathway forward. And this is the gap right now and the vacuum that's being left in the marketplace by the large strategics. And it's easy to pick on them because they get all the headlines, whether it's Medtronic, J&J, right. &J, even CMR in some cases, and some of the others, Phillips, gosh. Um, you know, if those organizations all have different challenges for different reasons right now, and their executive team are making critical, much needed decisions, they're not right, they're not wrong, they're just decisions. However, they are all missing a critical part of future talent access by allowing this vacuum right now to go unaddressed. And then we know this, Darwin, because I've been at this 30 plus years and hundreds of thousands of phone calls that over the next 24 months, the challenge 36 months, the challenge that, let's use it again, not piling on here, it's just easy to do. Medtronic is when you try and go after a force multiplier or a prices law person, they're gonna be like, yeah, but everything I'm reading right now in the marketplace is cutting back the profitability, restructuring once again, killing of programs, you know, juggling again of leadership. I don't know if I want to get involved in that. And that's the talk track that is currently in the market. And they need to do something very quickly 
and very intelligently to at least off balance that a little bit. I, th I think that and that's media and marketing, by the way. <laughs> right. And I think when you look at companies, they have many of the same challenges. It just depends on the scale. As you go up, the larger the company, you talk about Philips, Medtronic, we could name several of them. Uh, in terms of you know what we do with our position briefs and the, and, and the ability to protect a client's brand, how it's positioned in the marketplace and attract top talent, everybody knows who they are. So that isn't necessarily something that, could, could they use some of those things? Absolutely, could it benefit them? But they don't necessarily need it but how that message of where the company's at, where they're going and how people can still have incredible careers and evolve and who they will become by coming there, depending on what the, what the need is for that position and the value that they bring. You just hit, hit that nail on the head. They, that's vitally important. It's, 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 and you should start with the, <clears throat> there's a CEO um, that recently left the marketplace I think one of the best CEOs that the market's seen in the last sort of 15, 20 years, he and I would have a regular conversation and it would be, I want you to go out and identify, and I said it earlier, the top 20 people in each function within the entire industry. And I want you to tell me who they are. And I want you to stay on top of them for our organization. And I don't know if I'm going to need them this year or next year, but I want them to know more about our organization that's delivered by you than by what they can just happen to run across and read. So you've got to constantly be spoon feeding those top 360 force multipliers in the market. So while they see the less than optimal news in the market by some of these large strategics we see that's going on right now, they are getting information and it's public information, but it needs to be presented to them. And you talked about the position brief, which our firm created years ago, that allows you to distill down critical information so they can read it and go, I know I'm reading this less than optimal information in the market right now, but I'm seeing these other three or four things go on and it still has me interested in at least exploring future opportunities for them. You've got to do that now because once that gets too far down range, those force multipliers are going to stop even entertaining conversations. I think that what you just stated and how you explained it is so vital because there's so much white noise in the marketplace. There's so much technology. Uh, I just came from a conference where a whole aspect of artificial intelligence was discussed and, and explored, and there were eye-popping moments in that of things that I didn't even realize that were out there. People are inundated with information. So how you protect your value prop and you do it in a proactive way, I think is, is vital. I had a conversation um, with a company that we're looking to partner with, a, a CEO that's based out of Europe, really unique product value prop. And our first two interactions, the conversation was all around their mission, how they share that, because this person entered uh, new to the company and in 90 days realized multiple scenarios of wrong people in the wrong seats and that they had attracted certain talent that didn't fit the company culture. First town hall meeting, uh, they had a patient talk about how their product had positively impacted their life and, ch and changed kind of 
who who they are and the value that they brought and the company had never done that before and so thinking about how you attract people that fit your culture and then how that message of who the company is and where the company's going and who the company wants to be to attract the right people and how you share that message of who they can become i think is is critical when you think about the people posting and how companies can bring talent into their organization through that process versus when they identify and 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 if they can do this in house and they create those processes that's great for them that's greater efficiency it changes the pnl but the money and the investment of that capital is there i think and i'd love you know you speak you'll speak to it better than i do but whether they do that internally or externally the the capital and the investment has to be there so maybe you could speak to what those two different processes potentially look like for the company that says, okay, we're going to create best practices. We're going to do a better job of how we share who we are relevant to what's going on in the marketplace. And then for the critical areas and functions that we could potentially fill that, but the opportunity cost and how we reach out to talent, we're not as good at that. So let's identify a partner that creates efficiency and helps us to bring those, th that top talent and those that are differentiated. Mm -hmm. um, okay, let's stay med tech for a second while we're here, uh, even though this applies to any industry. Our med tech partners, whether you're a five person startup or you're a 20,000 you know, uh, large strategic, you have partners all the time. You have contract manufacturing that specializes in extrusion. Could you do the extrusion in-house? Sure, but maybe you don't want to use that footprint, quote unquote, that labor or technology base for that square footage. So what do you do? You outsource that or, or, right. or assembly, or you bring in a high level finite element analysis person in certain areas of structural design because you've got an impeller on a uh, sort of circulatory support uh, type mechanism. But it happens all the time. You bring in specialists all the time um, for critical, critical activities in your organization. And, and our firms, our, our clients do that. They bring in headhunters where it's really difficult to find that reg person or that quality person or that clin person or insert person here. I think, Darwin, that our industry can do a much better job um, in, in and uh, our, our, our firm continues to index towards this, hence the massive investment in the marketing media machine of Dragonfly Stories and 160 Studios, is I think that our industry headhunting has to stop being transactional with a 25 or 30% or 33% of first year compensation fee, wham, bam, thank you, man, and done. I think the organizations that bring strategy, consulting, a full media marketing um, uh, weaponization um, like you have done, like certainly we have done, to the equation and more so get involved in an annualized or a longer term relationship where it's a monthly consulting fee and I don't care if you hire three people or 12 people in the next quarter, but we will help you co-weaponize what current day strategies, um, current day tactics, the ability for you to outsource what you might think 
hiring a $120,000 contract recruiter to sit in one of the offices and go after LinkedIn in a very lazy way and think that is having your own internal talent access. And with that, not just having a marketing person who is a medical device marketing person think they understand how to market a brand, a hiring brand to the marketplace because they've never been a headhunter. They don't know what individuals want to hear. They don't know how to lay down a talk track for hiring six to 12 months from now because most mm -hmm. hiring revolves around who, who can we find in the next 30 days tends to be reactive. I think the most progressive search firms are going to do exactly what we're doing. They're gonna have their own media marketing and the ability to tell the story and the hiring brand at scale to, to individuals worldwide. And we need to change our pricing. We need to change the way we make our money. We can still do the transactional because not everybody's ready to do what we're doing right now. Um, right. One and out, two and out. But we have conversations going on right now. In fact, we just came back from Chicago that will make an announcement in the next day or two about a massive project of, it's not about the search fee per search, it's about the full relationship and hiring at yes. scale, not just on what you wanna pay us a retainer on. And I do think, Darwin, that there's a change coming and it's required because executive search hasn't changed in over 50, 60 years. And it's time that we change, but it requires a different mindset, a different investment thesis, and a different economic model of just wham, bam, thank you, man, one and done, or even five with this client. So it's a little bit of a longer answer, but it also mm -hmm. takes the responsibility and shares it with the firms that do search. I think you're, I, I think you, again, I think that's right. I think that's spot on. I think the opportunity to, change the industry in a very positive way to the benefit of, of everybody, including the candidate. And if you make the process better for the candidate, that benefits the company because only one person gets the position. And there's a, there's a, I think a lot of companies don't understand the amount of people that through a, a normal process and, and a more reactionary process that you have to go through to identify the person. And the longer you go through that process, the opportunity to get it wrong because of different pain points matters. Um, I think the Robin Hood example, uh, completely different industry, but them buying Boris's company and the investment they made to bring a recruiting company in-house kind of speaks to this a little. I, I, and by the way, I appreciate you comparing and contrasting what we're doing to what you're doing. Um, until I can get you ad to adopt me, literally, I have to continue to try to grow and scale by stealing and adopting aspects of what you do and sort of customizing them to myself. But my goal has been to change the candidate experience in a positive fa fashion for the company through the use of, of technology, better attraction, identify, if you can't find people in this market, Place relevant to the key functions that you talked about, that's a different story. There's so much, there is so much technology data that finding people is not the issue. It's how do you reach out to them? What's that conversation look like? What does the nurturing process look like so that they're willing to accept that call, share with you what matters to them and who they want to become? And 
how you how you do that, and I think you you know one of the reasons why I was attracted to who you are right off the bat is because I think we believe in the same aspect of how you bring other uh, value to other people, and how you bring uh, value in a way uh, that hopefully attracts them to what you can do for them, and you're kind of hiding in plain sight from from the value that you bring. But I believe there's a paradigm shift coming, and when you look at the metaverse centered with artificial intelligence. Everything's about digital optimization right now. It doesn't matter what functional unit, whether it's the CFO or whether it's regulatory affairs or CLIN, digital optimization, optimization of process to create efficiency is everywhere. So the, the, the recruiting history, I think, of the industry is a more re reactionary model. And the more reactionary the company is, the more pain they're in, the higher the fee because uh, they don't really have a choice. But I think, to your point, companies that are evolving and trying to bring more value that match up with companies that want to partner, that can bring value to them in multiple areas and help accentuate their message in the marketplace, I think that is going to be critical to the future of our industry. Yeah, and <clears throat> our clients already in med tech already off balance sheet investments, so they're um, let's call it so their shareholders, if they're a publicly traded company, um, don't necessarily look at longer term investments. Um, so with with the same with the same sort of uh, exploration of what's my ROI on that. So and, and, and then also sometimes you need to co-source or sometimes you need to. Um, outsource, co-source, which are the same thing. You should never outsource a core competency, but you can co-source a core competency, is bringing in a partnership where the search firm, because they are large enough and have the capacity, can offer up tremendously different economic models that are beneficial to both. Because most search firm, the average search firm is 2.5 desks. And that 2.5 desks are just burning and churning through transactional relationships all day. So what's happened yes. in that industry at large is they can only do it because the search firm is just making enough in order to either pay the owner or the partner or the AE and then maybe reinvest a couple dollars here and there. But for the most part, which is why there's only one, only one search firm in the world with a full production company, ours, again, not a commercial for us. Right. But bringing in resources that even none of our clients have that benefit their ability to short, mid, and long term cement relationships, trusting relationships, and keep the dialogue open with those individuals because of the content, education, information that goes out about their firm over time. To the point where I still say, I think there's going to be a Medtronic, a Johnson & Johnson, a Baxter, an Edwards channel online about here's what your life could be at in this organization. And that content would be about current employees, new projects, new financings, where markets are, uh, market education around it rather than product education, right? Because that's what people look like, look at when they go after careers is, what is the market like that your company happens to play in? And then mm -hmm. what is your company and that product in your company, how does it relate to where that market's going five years from now? So, you know, we, we are on a mission 
Darwin. And that's really what I want TMG's legacy to be, is to be the firm that changed from doing transactional 33 and a third percent fee agreements to running into multi-year contracts where the fees can drop down to as little as 10 or 15%. But because of the scale, because of the tools, because of the use of technology, the margins are there and the business owners can, with a high level of predictability, know what revenue is coming in and then start to invest and build out ecosystems like we have. And then maybe the search firm only picks up 10 or 15 clients in an entire year. And the clients are getting an asset that is a weapon versus their competitors. And they then get to start to attract three to five prices law people per year Mm-hmm. That are yes. those force multipliers that, again, continue to distance the self from their competitors. That's what I want TMG's legacy to be. There are so many different strategies that a company can use in terms of, 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 of talent acquisition. And, and they can use a combination of those. We've talked about aspects of a combination of, of those. We have a mutual uh, friend that, that we both respect greatly, Bernie Haffey. And he and I had a recent conversation about how in terms of like his interactions with, with clients that he essentially through the process of bringing them value and eliminates the need for aspects of his service because he helps them build a process that's better for them. And when you look at what strategies companies take, if it's more reactionary versus proactive, how you attract the efficiency of the process and even making sure it's it's the right cultural fit, who that person's gonna become, directly correlates to retention. And so uh, you just mentioned all these different companies. Every one of them it, it could, it, it, to, to your point, not a, it's, not a, it's not about, okay, everybody should go work with Joe Mullings or everybody should go work with me, but could every single company, every should every single company and the ones that you mentioned consider having a process like you have in a studio and how they nurture the marketplace, bring information to candidates and create a more warm process for when they get to get up to bat and have conversations that it's more fruitful and it, it helps them attract top talent more efficiently. Well, absolutely. And so through that, there's a lot of different ways that you can do it. But if they're not having those conversations and considerations, that's that's an opportunity missed, and it's going to hurt them in the long run, I believe. Yeah, if you can attract, <clears throat> I don't care what your company size is, if you can attract two to four if you're less than 50 people, you know, 10 to 20 if you're more than 1,000, and if you're more than 5,000, 20 to 40, force multipliers, prices law people, that changes everything in your organization. Yes. Having said that though, I don't know a single organization in med tech right now um, that is set up in order to cross that chasm. Um, but we're trying, we're trying. I think the other thing that you said that, uh, you know, when I first came in, never owned a business, never been in recruiting, no idea what I'm, what I'm really doing in issue, you know, for sure. And okay, well, where should the fee be? And the recruitment side of it is, oh, you know, 30%, 
you know, the fees anywhere from 20 to 35%. Oh, you need to be at 30%, this, that. The other side, the company's like, well, we do 20. Well, the focus, do you want to focus on what the fee is or what the ROI is and the intangibles and how well that external company or resource can be a partner and bring other intangibles to it? And you just talked about how things can evolve and could actually mean lower fees to the company. But because of it being more of a partnership, you can bring more proactive value at a lesser fee, potentially. And I think those are the kind of conversations that are going to be really interesting. Yeah. And you've got to have the infrastructure to make that <clears throat> to, to make that relationship work. And, and again, this is where I come back to, um, a I think, again, it's 2.3 or 2.5 people per office in a search firm at, at large. You certainly mm -hmm. have large search firms. And I wouldn't call Corn or Russell or Hydric a search firm any longer. I think they're doing board and C-level suites, but they, they, they don't run hand-to-hand -hand combat every day. And again, it's just their model. They're right. not right or wrong. Um, but when you go back down to the talent <clears throat> at large, uh, it's hard for an organization to have all the services to be able to go into a mid-cap or even a small or even venture firms or even PE firms and say, what did you spend in search last year? $2 million in your venture firm? What if I could double the number of people you got and increase the value, increase the quality and talent of the same number of people for maybe half that price? That's a conversation that is compelling and you need to be able to back it up with what we've been building and what we've been coaching and teaching people to do in the industry. And maybe you don't have to go out and open up a $2 million plus studio with talent. Um, maybe what you do then is you partner with firms that have that and you have a JV if you're a two and a half person search firm or four person search firm that you then say, okay, I'm going to. I'm going to pay a user fee to people who have those tools and know how to talk to talent. So I, I just think we're, we're, we're at a moment in time for search that um, the progressives will, will go ahead and continue to educate the market. And I think you'll see that the face of search change within 10 years. It's going to have to. I was going to ask you some questions relevant to media and analytics and yeah. how those tie together, but I think I think we've covered that really well. I want to pivot uh, to something that is really forefront of my mind and how I want us to bring SSI to continue to bring value over the next three years. But I did a, a post recently on mergers and acquisitions, and Harvard Business School did a case study on all industries, you know, over a couple trillion a year spent on mergers and acquisitions. Certainly, uh, you are somebody that really follows where the money goes and, and mergers and acquisitions in our marketplace. But they they uh, purported that 70 to 90 percent of mergers and acquisitions are considered failures. Mm -hmm. And when I think about we just came back from LSI thinking about a company giving, you know, two million, five million dollars to a company with a really innovative product and potential benefit to patients in the marketplace, number one. Number two, where they want to get to for the, 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 the Abbots and the J&Js and the Strikers and the Medtronics of the world to consider acquiring them as an addition to their portfolio, 
but how they evaluate, like that just seems like such an incredibly high miss. Um, and and I, I believe that how companies audit and evaluate and look at a company besides just the P&L, including do the cultures match? How are their, their hiring processes to identify the right talent that fits their culture, which again, ties into retention. I think there's a there's a opportunity for companies that are looking to to do mergers, acquisitions, and even how they evaluate it for companies like ours to bring them value. So uh, that's a little off the cuff, and I know you weren't necessarily expecting that question, but I'd love your thoughts on it. Um, all right, so we would have to def define failure or success. Okay, that's number yes. one. Number two is there's there's a few different types of acquisitions. There's acquisitions um, that are buying revenue or, or product lines that are already cleared by the FDA or approved by the FDA and already have a track record. So let's look at Globus's acquisition of Nuvasiv going on, right? So that's a revenue buy and a product platform buy and there is an integration of sales organizations which will be a cultural challenge in itself for a number of reasons, right. but that, that's one. And, and those are, those are far, further and few between. The acquisitions you're talking about, if you're gonna to refer to LSI, are these emerging tech startup companies, where those acquisitions are, you're, you're acquiring a technology that is not resident in-house right now, or is differentiated enough that it's a clear and present danger to your current technology. What happens there, Darwin, is when you buy a technology, you've got a couple issues that you've got to manage through. One is the quality systems, right? Because if you're a medical device, the first thing that has to happen is a harmonization of quality systems. And then a harmonization, obviously, of financial platforms. But quality systems is usually right. where you end up getting caught. Because in emerging tech companies, their quality system is just good enough to keep them out of trouble, just good enough not to be too robust so you don't choke innovation. And certainly, right. you know, we've got a limited resource, money, in most startups. So therefore, you end up just enough is good enough. And when those acquisitions take place, it's usually in a product that's not been released yet out to the market. And so your sample size generally is what have what's in place to get through the FDA. We don't have it in patients yet. And even with some acquisitions where they wait until it's cleared and you show uptake, adoption, utilization, then it takes place. But the numbers there are, are really small. You haven't exposed that product yet to a worldwide distribution and or a populace dramatically outside the clinical trial people that were hand selected. So now you're gonna increase your N of 100 to maybe N of a million and the weakest link is going to come out there. So that's where you have crashes and burn on integration on quality systems and the lack thereof in the acquisition. The other side is if you're a real high-end technology company, and let's take especially this digital domain that's occurring right now, and let's take, let's just use surgical robotics, and I don't care soft tissue or not. When you right. are acquiring a surgical robotic platform, historically, most medical devices have their R&D spend up until it gets cleared by the FDA and then it goes to market. So a lion's share of your R&D spend has already occurred, historically, legacy thinking, by the time the company gets acquired. 
And what you're hiring there is either a penetration of a market by the sales team, or you're hiring a technology that no longer needs an ongoing heavy lift or is a manufacturing technology. But when you start to get into the robotics world and anything that is digital in nature where you're claiming the data is really where the money is, those digital platforms, those surgical robotic platforms require a doubling and tripling down of R&D post go to market because everything, if you will, is on the digital, the data, the insights, the algorithm, the AI, the machine learning as advertised. Well, when the acquisition takes place, all your people who have that tribal knowledge generally don't want to go to work at a large strategic. So where do they go? to their next startup. So right. now the acquiring company thinks that, hey, we're not a digital native, so we haven't thought deep enough about this yet. And so let's bring this in and let's deploy it. And what you see is you start to see a degradation in the R&D and the new emerging features that are real differentiators in the market. And so I think you're gonna see moving forward, the smart companies, if that acquisition occurs, keeping an incentive in place or a build to buy or a shared revenue model or a JV, where if you're not a digital native, that you keep those people in there, incentivize them on a longer tail retention until you get a chance over three, five, seven years to become that digital native. And so that's usually why you see after a three to five year period of most acquisitions in med tech, that it ends up being a less than optimal because your call points are different, the, 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 the procedure's too complex, um, it's not a native, digital native skill set. Um, the quality systems that we've seen with some of these companies on the diabetes side with Medtronic, on the Philips side certainly, where you've acquired a Trojan horse inside that technology that didn't rear its head until suddenly you had 10,000, 100,000, a million users or use cases is where it goes sideways. Yes, I, th I think we could do a whole podcast just mm. on, on this area. And I, you, you, like you said, we have to define what success is. And that definition was based on an uh, interesting report for those that want to take a look at that from uh, how that was identified. But I went through five mergers and buyouts in 12 years in corporate America. Um, so I have that perspective. And then eight years, I've seen multiple acquisitions where all these issues right after the acquisition, including warning letters, uh, huge cost and issue relevant to opportunity cost there. You just broke it down in a, in a couple of different areas. Uh, I, I, I just think it's really interesting how companies look at that. Um, I'll have to, I, again, I think we could have an entire podcast on this. Uh, there's, one uh, executive when I was in corporate America that shared an acquisition that they made and due diligence, and they had not visited the site before they did. And the, 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 like right off the bat, he went for the first time after and was like, oh my gosh, like we're not a good cultural fit for, for one another, regardless of the reason that they bought them for. So uh, very insightful. I appreciate you accepting my curveball there and throwing your thoughts out on that. Uh, we're already over 
the allotted time here. So I'm excited. This will be a, a you know, we'll break this out in a two part for the podcast. But thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your time and, and your perspective. I think this incredibly valuable conversation uh, to our following. And I really appreciate it. You got it. Darwin, please keep up your mission and your uh, tremendous voice and value you bring to the med tech industry and to recruiting at large, my friend. I appreciate it. See you soon. You got it, buddy. Be well. All right. Thanks. For the video recording of this podcast, along with additional resources, make sure to find us on the web at SureGSolutions.com and follow us on social media and LinkedIn at SureGSolutions.